the heart grow fonder. Father Mark, we're glad to have you back. But familiarity breeds contempt, yeah? So I'm going to take um, my speaking advice from President Franklin Roosevelt today, who said, be sincere, be brief, then sit down. A few weeks ago, I didn't really intend that this was going to be kind of preaching a series. However, the theme that God has been putting on my heart has been consistent over the last three weeks. If you remember, a few weeks ago, we, in the Gospel of John, Jesus comes to Peter and the disciples as they're fishing, and it's not going real well. And one of the things that I hope we saw in that, that God's love is such that He pursues us no matter where we are in our lives, no matter where we are in our walk. And I know, for me, that gives me great comfort as a father when I sometimes see my adult children heading in a direction that I know is not where God would have them. But I always, always hold on to those words that were spoken over them at their baptism, you are marked as Christ's own forever. And so we walk by faith, even in the midst of that. And last week, we talked a little bit about the idea of walking by faith, that No matter what, all of the other things, our faith must be firm in God's love for us and His purposes for our life. We must follow the Good Shepherd and we must learn what it means to live by faith. And that brings us to the Gospel reading this morning. And if you would like to turn to the Gospel of John in chapter 13... We'll be looking at that gospel reading this morning. And so I started out before I have a question. Has anybody here ever experienced someone in your family hurting you tremendously? So most of us have. And that's the reality of family, isn't it? It has been said that we can choose our friends, but we don't get to choose our family. And yet there is something in us that loves family no matter what, no matter how badly we've been hurt. In fact, if you ever really want to, if you've ever met someone, and maybe this has even been so at periods of your own life, that there has been a break, a division, a hurt within the family that has not been moved past, there is a bitterness that sets in. Because you see, God created us to love. He created us to be loved and to love. It's one of the reasons that people that have never experienced a lot of love growing up sometimes seek it in some pretty hopeless situations, don't they? Whether it be bad relationships, whether it be even things like alcohol and drugs, there is a part of us that must be loved. And really, until we've experienced the love of God, we've never really experienced love. And so Jesus is speaking to His disciples. He knows what lies ahead. And He says to them, 
In verse 34, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so that you must love one another. And by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. I want to propose this this morning. That no matter who we are as individuals, no matter who we are as a church, no matter what we feel called to, no matter all of our prayers for revival, if love is not the foundation, it's nothing. If love is not the foundation, it's nothing. And I hope this morning, in the next few minutes, that we will see both some scriptural evidence as well as some historic evidence for that fact. that we must learn more and more, not only of God's love, but what it means to love one another. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Your Word says that You are love. And as we listened to the words and spoke the words of that psalm this morning, again and again we hear that You love us, that Your hand is upon us, That if we will but seek you and seek after you, we will know your love more deeply and that we will be changed by that love. That we will love our families better, our wives and our children's. That we will love our brothers and sisters in your church better. And that all men will somehow see you through our love for one another. And so we pray, Lord, that you would make that so in our lives. We pray, Lord, that we would hear the word you have for us, that we would have hearts and minds and ears prepared to hear. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Now this most important commandment Jesus left for the eleven was this new commandment to love one another. And I'm not going to get hugely into the Greek, because although I have a Greek name, it ends there. (laughs) The idea here, though, is a newness. It's a freshness. It's not like a new thing, like when we think of a new car coming out or whatever. It's this idea of freshness. And the word is actually closely related to the very word used for revival. So this idea that God was going to revive in them this fresh love, this different love maybe than they had ever experienced. Jesus knew if their motive in following Him was to obtain a high place in the Messianic kingdom, that a spirit of rivalry would disrupt their fellowship. And we saw that, didn't we? Think about their questions to the Lord. You know, who's going to sit at your right and your left? Who's going to be first in your kingdom? Can those things be active in our families or even in the church sometimes? Sure. I want to be on top. I want to be number one. I mean, anyone that has children can see that, right? Amongst siblings. Jesus wanted them to lay that down. To understand that the first will be last and the last will be first. That they were actually called to be one another's servants. To even lay down their life, he says, for one another. 
The attitude of love would be the bond that would keep them united and would be the convincing demonstration that they had partaken of his own spirit and purpose. So as they went out into the world, loving one another, and as Bishop Jones likes to talk a lot about the book of Acts. We really see that, right? At the very beginning of the book of Acts, in chapter 2, we see the church doing what? Taking care of their own. They held all things in common, Scripture tells us. They even sold their properties, took their money out of the bank, you name it, and made sure that everyone in the church was provided for. Now you notice... There was no government program there or anything like that. It was the church choosing to love itself because Christ had called them to that. During medieval times, it's said that one of the things that really, really set Christians apart was when you had things like the Black Plague going on and people were dying People were fleeing cities. I mean, they were going anywhere to get away from these things. But it was Christians that were coming into these cities and caring for the sick. And the testimonies were that people could not believe that they would do that. It was such a different picture of everything that they had ever known. It was God's love in them. God's love is contagious. Lord, may we catch that. You see, Jesus had love for his disciples as he has love for us without reservation and without limit. And his calling on us is to do likewise. Jesus knew we would struggle. And one of the things that for me for the last few weeks have been really speaking to me is just the daily office, if you read the lectionary in the daily office, especially the gospel readings, they were from Matthew this past week, and each and every day, Jesus was really talking about love, and he was talking about how different we are to look than the rest of the world. I think it was Tuesday, the reading was from Matthew 5.21. You have heard it said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. If anyone who says you are a fool will be in fact in danger of the fire of hell. Wow. Have you ever held anger with a brother or sister? The 23rd verse, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled, and then come and offer your gift. The idea here is if there is disunity between us, we must first come to be reconciled to our brother or sister, before we can even approach the altar to worship God. He's that serious about this idea of love. But here's really the hard thing. As brothers and sisters in the Lord, we are called to even love the unlovable. 
One of the reasons I truly believe our family was drawn to this church was because of the love that we saw one for another. Even in the midst of all the things this church has gone through. Yet I believe that one of the reasons God gave me this word is because for some of us there are some things that we still have to deal with. That God, we have to allow God to deal with. That are maybe holding us back from hearing all that He has for us and being able, or allowing Him to do all that He wants to do in our lives. On Friday, the Gospel reading from Matthew said this, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who even persecute you. Has anyone ever here ever heard the name William J. Seymour? Any historians here, church historians? William Seymour. We have a winner. <laughs> Several months ago, I kind of began searching for a book about William Seymour. Um, I really believe the Holy Spirit put that on my heart. It was, he was someone I had studied in seminary and... In a minute, you're going to know him very well. Well, you're not going to know him because I'm going to tell you his whole history, but you're going to be like, aha, he's kind of one of those people. But William Seymour is a picture of how God can use someone who loves to do incredible things. William Seymour was born at the turn of the century in the early 1900s in Louisiana, And from everything I've read in history, Louisiana was no place to be the turn of the century for a black man. Reconstruction had pretty much failed. Basically, the laws were all in place, but the federal government had pulled out and said, we we can't deal with this, so we're just going to leave them to themselves. This was kind of the beginning where we got Jim Crow laws and all of those things. His father had been a Union soldier, had fought in the Union Army, and had caught some horrible disease from the swamps in Louisiana, Anybody been in the swamps in Louisiana? Yeah. Had caught some horrible disease that had killed him. So he was without a father from about 12 on. He himself caught smallpox, was blind in one eye. But God's hand was upon him. William Seymour would, as a pretty young man, would travel to the Midwest kind of following after people that were preaching. They were preaching some kind of new things. And I'm not going to get all into the names of the people that he sat under because I don't think that's important. But time and again, William met opposition. In fact, one of the people that he sat under that he really believed had this powerful word would not even let him sit in the classes. He had to sit outside the door. He would sit on the steps and he would listen in because he was the only black man there. And we don't know, historians don't know if it was because there were laws saying he couldn't sit in there or if the pastor that was teaching just had some issues with his race. We just don't know. But the fascinating thing about William Seymour is that he never took an offense. He never took an offense. He would then be invited from the Midwest to 
Los Angeles, California to preach at a church, to be a, a guest preacher to kind of fill in for a pastor that had been preaching for a while there. And so he travels to Los Angeles, California, and he begins to preach. However, the things that he's preaching about, the pastor doesn't really agree with. And so he comes in to preach one Sunday and the doors are locked. He's not welcome. But instead of holding bitterness, William Seymour always chose to love. This is from an eyewitness. William Seymour would become the pastor of what we now know as the Azusa Street Revival. William Seymour was directly responsible for affecting the lives of over 600 million people today. We are direct descendants of what William Seymour did at Azusa Street. Founded on Christ's love. Reverend Glenn A. Cook wrote, I went there to the Azusa Street Revival, along with many others, to straighten out their doctrine. But no amount of strife or contention bothered him. He simply smiled, and I was condemned by my own activity. He was a man of humility and character. You see, William Seymour understood that love is most oftentimes not easy. It is said of William Seymour, the the Azusa Street Revival, the building, actually I went there a number of years ago when I was in seminary. I wanted to find Azusa Street, 312 Azusa Street, and I walked all over downtown Los Angeles. This was before GPS, kids. There was a time before GPS. So I had a map, a paper thing with lines on it and stuff. And I found 312 Azusa Street, and it's now the home of something like the Japanese Cultural Center or something. So it was torn down years ago. It was pretty much a ramshackle building. They said the floors were dirt. Um, there was a contractor who had volunteered and built the pews out of scrap wood. The pulpit was made out of two packing crates stacked on one another. And they said that Brother Seymour would spend the entire prayer meeting. They would start in the morning. It would sometimes go to late in the evening, seven days a week. Sometimes there would be 500 people packed inside and 800 people outside at the height of the Azusa Street Revival. And Brother Seymour would spend the entire day with his head inside of the packing crates just praying. Just praying. They said he never had a harsh word to say about anyone. And the Azusa Street Revival, and remember this is 1906, had a mixed congregation. The media began to flock to this place because they had never seen anything like this. Can you imagine whites and blacks worshiping together? Receiving the baptism in the Holy Spirit? And pouring out into the streets to spread the good news that God was alive and he was moving. The other book that I've been reading that I alluded to is C.S. Lewis's Four Loves. And that is a challenging book, I will tell you. 
This is what C.S. Lewis has to say about love. Christ did not teach and suffer that we might become, even in the natural loves, more careful of our own happiness. We shall draw nearer to God not by trying to avoid sufferings inherent in all loves, but by accepting them and offering them to Him, throwing away all defensive armor. If our hearts need to be broken and if He chooses this as the way in which they should break, so be it. He continues, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Now, I don't know about you, but when I get hurt, I really kind of want to protect, right? I just don't want to deal with that again. Whether it's, hey, it's time to pack up and find a new church, right? Because somebody hurt me and I really don't want to deal with this. Or I'm not going to be willing to, to put myself out there and to help out another person because, you know, that last person stole from me, kind of abused my family and all that, abused our trust. To love it all is vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, Safe, dark, motionless, and airless, it will be changed. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all of the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. See why I say his books are kind of challenging? Because I tell you, I've been there. I've walked that. I've gone to church Sunday after Sunday, sometimes even saying, just protect me. I just want to like get it over with. We'll worship God, me and you, Jesus, and then we're out of here. And you know, I imagine there isn't anyone in this room that hasn't been hurt by somebody in the church. But I guarantee you, you've probably hurt somebody in the church. And the reality of it is, God is calling us to get beyond that. To become vulnerable once again. Because it is in our vulnerability, it is in our willingness to love one another, that God can move. I want to leave you with this quote from William Seymour. The Pentecostal power, when you sum it all up, is just more of God's love. If it does not bring more love, it is simply a counterfeit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are the author of love. And in your life, in your journey to the cross and your resurrection, you came to show the world what love really is. And we are the recipients of that love, Lord. May it change us. 
May we see like your disciples anew what your love is like each and every day. And may we choose to be vulnerable enough, Lord, to love those around us, not just our families, not just our brothers and sisters in this room, but in this community around us. And Lord, may we see you move in power. Help us to be faithful to what you have called us to. And may it be said of us, oh, how they loved. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now I'll sit down.